Welcome to StellarCast, the Stellar Recruitment Podcast. Let's go on an inspiring journey. By listening, learning, and taking key actions from our own recruitment experts, as well as industry leaders and inspirational individuals. By unlocking our own transformative change, we can all become the best versions of ourselves. Right, we've got uh, Warren Crowther joining us here today, General Manager of JFL. Uh, Warren uh, and myself have known one another for quite some time. I've been hugely impressed with how he's developed his career over that period of time, uh, his integrity and the way he's gone about conducting himself, but also now in his current role with JFL, who also has, uh, I guess, uh, a corporate personality for, uh, similar to Warren's in so much as uh, a real keen interest in doing the right thing by, by customers, uh, their staff, and the work that they produce, they take deep pride in and very uh, integrity-based organisations. So. Today, we will unpack how Warren has built his career, but also some of the inner DNA of JFL. So I really hope you enjoy. Cool, uh, Warren, thanks very much for joining us, mate. Appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk a little bit about your journey and certainly JFL's journey. But uh, maybe before we start, we sort of might go back to where it all began and maybe you can share with the listeners around that moment uh, and maybe the motivation when you decided to become uh, a civil engineer. Yeah, Sean, thanks for the invitation, mate. Um, yeah, I guess uh, two answers to that question. I think I realised I wanted to be a civil engineer very early, like probably 10 years old. Wow. Uh, I remember like a, a grade eight science project, building a bridge out of paddle pop sticks <laughs> and load testing it. Um, but it, for me, I didn't really realise that it was – that I was that it was the right career for me till many years later. Mm-hmm. So I got all the way through high school, did the civil engineering degree, worked as an engineer for a couple of years, and was still not sure. Uh, and then had an experience about three years out of uni where I went up and uh, I got sent up to build a bridge up on Cape York, which was a great adventure. Uh, and I guess out of that, had that that first experience of uh, leadership responsibility, a high-performing team, seeing it all come together, uh, you know, the satisfaction of, of leaving something behind, uh, and I was hooked. That was, that was a game-changer for me, mate, from that day onwards. Yep. I, I knew not only am I in the right profession, but I, I might actually one day be good at this. Yep. Uh, well, it's definitely proven to be the case, but it uh, sounds like a pretty Pivotal moment uh, in the career when you sort of realise this is definitely the the career path uh, for you, and obviously you've made a, a very successful career since then. But um, just moving beyond that question, um, as we sort of talked about uh, at the beginning before we started talking on the podcast, we talked about JF Hull, and uh, business has been around a good period of time since '77, uh, I understand. But there's definitely a bit of a mystique about the business. I think obviously your customers. Uh, know you very well and respect you guys a lot and you've got a lot of repetitious business uh, on the back end of that track record of trust and and delivery. Um, But I'm really sort of keen to understand, you know, what is the, uh, you know, what is the philosophy around engaging with with customers and and staff for that matter and uh, how did the business sort of start and what was the vision at that time back in 77? Well, I guess the, the business was started by by John Hull. For a long time, it was a pretty small operation. I worked out of the home office. I think he had had 
the workshop in the garage downstairs. Yep. Uh, his values have always been very focused on looking after people and he's also he's a true engineer he, and engineering excellence is a real driver for him. So you could say that those are the, the values that the business was founded on. Um, the, the original vision for the business really came from there. Yep. Um, I guess your second question there about about customers and how we interact with our customers, um, sort of I think for a long time, ever since John kicked the, kicked the business off, there's been a real commitment to integrity in the way we deal with clients and also partners, uh, supply chain, people. Uh, the key is that we've always been committed to putting the long-term stuff before the short-term. You know, we work in, a, in an industry where there are commercial realities. Uh, it's ferociously competitive. Uh, if it's, always, it's sometimes tempting to just uh, to try and battle your way out of a situation when a project's not going well. But Hull have always had this approach of uh, it's better to take a hit now rather than damage the reputation or the relationships that we're going to be relying on down the track. Uh, so that's, that's part of the DNA of the company. And over time that adds up. And eventually after, it might take 10 or 20 years, but in time you get a bit of an advantage out of it over your competitors. And uh, it takes a long time to get there and it can be very easily thrown away. Absolutely. It doesn't take long to lose it. No. But that's, that's sort of, that's how we have established ourselves with our clients. Well, it sounds like there's a lot of brand equity developed, like you say, over a long period of time, um, but a real sort of focus on doing the right thing. And, uh, and you know, I guess there's a real focus on, on, on people, whether it's doing the right thing with your, your customers as individuals, but your staff as well. Um, I'd be sort of keen to understand the philosophies around staff. There seems to be a real sort of culture of appreciation of, of the the team that work for the business. And and from my point of view, you, you never really see too many people come out of JFL. They tend to last and, and hang around, which, you know, is a derivative of no doubt a, a great culture. But how do you think they've developed this culture of retention and a place where people really want to work? Yeah, well, it's true. We've got a lot of people there that have been there for a very long time. Um, like not uncommon walking around the office to see 15, 20, 30-year-long servants. Uh, I think over the years, people have really enjoyed the leadership of, of uh, John and Bruce as the two senior managers in, in, the, uh, in the company. I think there's a lot of personal loyalty to those two guys. So for me, that's a challenge because they're both – in the process of retiring and the big challenge facing me is how do we keep that going as those guys phase themselves out? How do we transfer that loyalty, uh, which is really based on their leadership style and keep keep it going? Yeah, and, uh, and no doubt you'll bring fresh ideas and, and energy and expertise to the business and we'll talk a little bit more about your um, background in a moment. But just before we sort of go to that, um, I'll be keen to sort of understand uh, you talk about those personalities and, and uh, you know, no doubt they've got a, a lot of brand equity within the business, but w- what is their impact uh, on the DNA of the business and, and what are their sort of real strengths that have enabled the company to become what it has? Yeah, well, I mean, John's the chairman of our board and Bruce is the executive director. As I said, John's the founder and, and Bruce has been there for over 30 years. Um 
I guess the um, together they've been the driving force behind the company. Uh, I think it's fair to say that they're two contrasting but also complementary personalities. So John's focus is really on people, relationships, and, and engineering solutions. Bruce's focus is more on the nuts and bolts of, of how you run an efficient, competitive contra- contracting business. Um, so in that sense, quite different, but there's this similarity in that they're both very strategic in the way they think, and they're both risk takers. So I guess you, all that comes together and that they're, they're a good team. Mm-hmm. You know? In their, their differences are complementary, uh, and that's um, that's where the companies come from, and, th- and they continue to at board level to have that that influence over the business. Fantastic. And within that Exco group, you talk about those two individuals. Obviously, yourself. Is there other key stakeholders that sort of form that Exco group? Yeah, there's also two younger board members that are long term employees. They represent like the next generation of leadership within the business as well. Um, so yeah, it's uh, uh, yeah, but all people who are long term wedded to this business. There's no, I'm the only ring in that's just turned up recently. Yeah, yeah, which sends a real strong message. It seems like they really invest in their people. People want to hang around. Uh, they create career paths. Um, you know, within the organisation, there's a real sense of loyalty. You know, and and like you say, in the cutthroat world that is uh, civil contracting. That's not really that common. It, it might have been in years gone by, but in the so many opportunities for candidates in this day and age, uh, and so many players in the market, it's not uncommon for people to move around a lot. So to have that sort of loyalty, it's quite a distinctive feature, uh, I think, in, in today's world. But um, keen to sort of speak to you about your career. Um, I think I've known you since the Coal Connect project in Central Queensland uh, many years ago. But uh, obviously, over the last 20 plus years, you've worked for some of the largest civil contractors out there, Leighton slash CPB, Land Lease, and you've delivered you know major infrastructure projects uh, in excess of a billion dollars in value and, and often quite challenging, complex projects with that. And you've been project director at the front end of all of that. Um, I, I guess I'm sort of keen to understand, you know, some of your core principles or, or philosophies for how you've built your career. Anything that you might be able to glean or draw on that other aspiring uh, people might be able to take some value or insight from. So, what, what can you sort of share around some of those principles or, or strategies you've used to build your career successfully? Yeah, good question, mate. I think, um, I mean, from my early days in the industry, I, I think there were always senior people that I looked up to. The guys that I wanted to emulate were the guys who had that reputation of his handshakes as good as his, is his word is as good as a signed contract. And uh, there were a few guys that I worked with at Leighton that I saw in that category that I really looked up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was a few other people outside that within the broader industry that had that reputation. And I think that was something that I always aspired to, the idea that we work in this ultra-competitive industry. If you can maintain your integrity in that environment, it really says something about, about your character. So I guess that, w- that was always a goal for me. Um, and, uh, you know, 15 years in Tier 1 contractors, as you say, working for CPB and Land Lease, and uh, those those companies, you tend to find yourself from time to time in a project where you might be the bottom of a pretty deep hole and uh, in that multinational corporate environment, there's an expectation that you'll do whatever needs to be done to get 
to, you know, just stop the bleeding, please. Yeah. Um, you know, ruthlessness is, is expected. Um, so I like to think that throughout all that time, I stuck to my principles and despite, you know, the pressure that I was under there and that's something I'm, I'm proud of. Um, in a tier one environment, did that help me? I'm not sure it actually it did help me in, in terms of climbing the ladder particularly, but I like to think that I didn't lose sight of the leader that I wanted to be through that time. And beyond, you know, that philosophy of integrity being a, a real hallmark of how you built your career and conducted yourself during that time, has there been uh, any person or anything that have been quite pivotal to your development or, or any piece of education or anything else like that that you, you, you regard looking back to be quite influential in how you've got to where you are now? Yeah, I, remember, I, I mean, there was a few individuals in my early days at Leighton that definitely were a big influence. Uh, I prefer not to name names because you're always going to miss someone. Oh, of course, yeah. Uh, I remember there was there was an old bloke that was the general manager of John Hollands when I was coming through early days. And I didn't I work for John Hollands, but I heard about this bloke. It's a fellow called Rick Barton. He was the bloke that I first remember that coining of that phrase, you know, his handshake's as good as a contract was used to describe Rick. Uh, and that was something I, you know, I aspired to. And I actually had the opportunity many years later to work with Rick on the gun project, yeah. which I really enjoyed. Yeah. But that, yeah, that that was the those those type of people were there in the industry, but they weren't the norm. Uh, and I, I was always interested in that idea of of maintaining professional integrity despite the fact that you know it's such a cutthroat business. No, it's fantastic. It's good that you gravitated towards that person. You, you didn't initially uh, seem to know him at that point in time, but you heard of his reputation and that philosophy of uh, integrity, uh, and obviously you coined that to become your own. So that's um, that's really, really good, and it obviously worked well for you. But uh, I must say now, looking at you, you do look a, a lot more relaxed um, than what you were when I would see you, um, particularly at the front end of some of those large – uh, and pressure-driven projects. So I'm keen to sort of understand uh, why did you choose to, to leave that blue-chip world and join, you know, JF Hull after such a long time in that environment? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, <laughs> yeah, the life of a project director wasn't meant to be easy, was it? I think, Absolutely uh, not. I did enjoy that, though. I, I always mm. enjoyed the big projects and the high-profile projects that working for Tier 1 companies gave access to. Uh, but by the time I reached the end of like 15 years of Tier 1 contracting, I think I, I looked up at the people I was working f- for, the, the senior leaders, and there were some great people there and very talented people. Uh, I really admired them, but I realized that I didn't fit that mold. Mm. They, they, were, they were cut from a different cloth to me. And what I perceived to be my strengths were perceived by others to be my weaknesses. So... Once I realized that, it was an easy decision, I think, to move on. I just had to find the right place to go where I could find that right fit. Well, it's good uh, self-awareness to know that whilst you carved out a a good career, a great career, and you could have continued in that vein, something intuitively didn't feel like you belonged to that world, and and maybe it was a a different culture or environment that you were seeking, and and it definitely seems like J.F. Hull's agreeing with you, um, you know, a bit over a year into it. But, uh, you know, now a year or so down the track, what are the things that you appreciate most about having made that move? 
and I guess beyond that, you know, what what is your vision for the business moving forward? Well, I guess the things I appreciate. I mean, first and foremost, working for a company that's that's trusted by clients and partners. Those big companies um, can be a bit intimidating for clients and par- and partners in terms of the way you know they're 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 big operators and. I always felt that when I was representing those companies, you had to earn trust. Whereas when I'm now working for JF Hull, what I find is the trust is there before you even turn up to the meeting, you know. So I really enjoy that. Um, I really like working with a team that's very skilled. There's a lot of, there's some really talented people at, at Hull. It's a smaller team, but a real concentration of good people. I like working with systems and processes that are designed on, on the KISS principle. <laughs> that's been a real breath of fresh air yep. there. Uh, and and there's a real laser focus on finding the smartest engineering solution as well which which I enjoy in terms of the vision going forward for the, for the business I mean that's always a hard question to answer, <laughs> but I guess now I've been here a year I should be able to probably answer that shouldn't I um, but yeah I think consolidate the place that Hull has in the marketplace already as a, um, a leading structure specialist in Queensland uh, people often ask me about growth, you know, is the strategy to grow? The answer is not really. The strategy is to grow if the opportunity is there to grow and to definitely not grow if that opportunity is not there, you know. So it's, uh, that's something that, that was a strategy that predates me. Hull's always had this attitude that um, a successful contract has to be able to grow and shrink because the industry is so cyclical. Uh, and I think I see that mistake being made in the industry by by competitors from time to time where they create a, a machine that needs to be fed with work. And that means you have to you have to join in the race to the bottom when when the market tightens up. And I guess, uh, the number one thing on the priority list for our strategy is to avoid ever getting caught in that in that, in that race to the bottom, I guess. That's probably the simple way to put it. Uh, you need to be able to sit out when the market's too hot. I think that's a fantastic outlook and a rare one. Well, I don't often hear of that one. I think there's generally an inherent uh, expectation that companies will continue to grow and and get bigger and expand. But bottom lines often tell you that despite that growth in revenue, it doesn't translate to bottom line. And in some cases, in the, the harsh reality of hard dollar contracting, it means that a lot of money is lost in that process. And obviously, shareholders suffer. And also staff suffer when you've got to make cutbacks and all the rest of it. So it seems like it's really humble, pragmatic view to, I guess, trimming the strategy dependent of the environment at the time, which is, I think, is as simple and as obvious as it sounds, it's rare. So it's obviously stood the business in, in good stead. Um, and I think the retention of staff and customers speaks to that. But um, can you sort of uh, understand your personal drivers, you strike me as a person that wants to continue to grow and, and evolve your, your your capability and knowledge base uh, to enable you to sort of perform at your peak and, and continue to improve. But um, talk to us about the motivation to do an MBA and, you know, what you took from that process, if anything, and, and, and I guess any other advice you might pass on to engineering graduates or aspiring uh, individuals in, in that context of self-improvement. I think I did that EBA, that MBA about 10 years ago and I think at the time the, the motivation was really around just differentiating myself from the people, from my peers who I was really competing with for promotion. 
um, I I never really had the, the feeling that it accelerated my career. Uh, I did learn qu- quite a lot from that study, but when you compare that to what you learn on the job, it's probably a minor part of the, of the learning and development process. Um, so looking back on it, I mean, MBAs are one of those things where you, you do get out of it what you put in. And I just feel that in hindsight, I was at a time in my career where I was so busy at work, so busy at home, I probably didn't put in, in as much as I could have. Yeah. And the result was, I, you know, I got through it, but I could have got more out of it. Yeah. But in saying that, uh, I think, you know, with a young family and demanding project requirements, um, there's not a lot of spare time at the same time. But right. uh, what, what I like most about that answer is I think, you were strategic enough to uh, diagnose that if you did this, you could differentiate yourself over your peer group. And if you had person A and person B, similar sort of background or skills, but person B had the MBA, that might be a bit of a differentiator, which often can put you put your nose in front of uh, other candidates when looking for jobs or looking for opportunities. So I think that's probably a, a good distinctive part to that answer for, for those that are listening. But um can you sort of look into the crystal ball a little bit now as well, obviously with technology and everything changing so quickly? Um, can you sort of understand what your take is uh, on the future of civil engineering and, and what we could expect moving forward? Yeah, great question, mate. <laughs> well, at the moment, you can't really answer that question without talking about the short-term situation we've got with the COVID of pandemic, course. of course. And um, I've got to say, it doesn't feel great to say it. But, you know, we all know that a lot of people have suffered the health and economic impacts of COVID. But the reality is that in a recession, governments tend to build a lot of infrastructure. And uh, the result there is that civil engineers are the winners out of the whole thing. Yep. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> as, as I say, it doesn't feel great to say it, to say that, but it's definitely but history true. tells you that that's the case, right? It's happening already. Yep. You know, we're already seeing it. So, in the short term, I see a very bright future for the industry and for our profession. Thinking uh, beyond that, though, like in, I think you, you, your question was more about a longer term. I'm, I'm always interested to read about how emerging technologies are going to affect uh, different professions in the future and uh, you know, artificial intelligence being a good example of that. Whenever you see a list of the jobs that will be replaced by AI, <laughs> you'll see doctors and lawyers, all sorts of very highly skilled professions on that list, but you'll never see engineers on that list. Uh, and there, I, th- I think from that point of view, there will always be a, a role for engineers in society. I think uh, the future is very bright uh, for the engineering profession. Um, particularly true because, you know, what we've really seen in the last 10 years is that the, the civil construction industry and the engineering profession has actually, after a long time of stagnation, started to evolve a little bit. And we, you know, really been impressed by the way that the industry's embraced diversity, technology, and, and finally started to move with the times a bit in the last 10 years. Yeah, no, fantastic. Good, good answer. And I agree. Um, and I guess, uh, there's a component, there's linear activities, right? You know, let's just call that linear activity, you know, accounting, uh, costs, revenue, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I guess civil engineering, there's a component of you've got to think laterally, right? And you've got to try and 
come up with different smarts or scenarios for different situations. It's not always one plus one equals two. And, and I guess that's a bit of that. There's principles that are universal, but I guess there's that out-of-the-box thinking around engineering solutions that's hard for maybe AI to encapsulate. Yeah, that's right. So now we talked a little bit before around you nursing a bit of an injury at the moment. Um, and oh, I guess what we're referring to is your uh, – competitive exploits on Strava with mountain biking and the likes. So keen to sort of understand how you switch off. Obviously, you're a family man, but how do you sort of switch off and, and what do you get up to outside of work? Yeah, well, sure. As you know, <laughs> <laughs> when you're a dad, that's your number one hobby. The other ones will have to take the back seat a little bit. But, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested in cycling. I, I enjoy both road and mountain bike uh, riding. And as you say, I'm nursing a, a few injuries at the moment, both to my uh, my body and my ego from a, a bit of a fall a week or so ago. Um, also really enjoyed reading. That's from a relaxation point of view, that's probably the biggest thing for me. That's how I switch off, get to sleep at night. Yeah. It's just, you know, nothing better than a good book. Yep. And uh, just on that, is there a book that really sticks out? What's the book that maybe you've most enjoyed and why? Or just one of the ones you've enjoyed and why? Briefly. I can tell you a, a real recent one that I've yeah. just finished. is There's a book called Milkman. Okay. I actually can't remember the author. Yeah. But it's it's set in the 1970s in Belfast in, in the ah, Troubles. And it's wow. a story of a family just working their way through trying to survive in uh, in 1970s Belfast. Great great book. I'd recommend that for anyone listening. It's, real, yeah, it's yeah. a real one of those books where a lot of different themes are sort of interwoven into it. Yeah. So there's a bit of bit of resilience, that context of the family and supporting one another and and probably in some regards not taking for granted what we come to enjoy today. That's right, mate. To yeah. an extent. So no, it's good. Good to have a, another avenue to switch off beyond the, the cycling. Um, but I guess you, you've been really good in giving us uh, uh, some time out of your busy schedule today, mate. So I appreciate that. But um, keen to understand, I guess, the elevator pitch or how you – present or, or, or sell the business uh, and who would fit well at JFL? What would you sort of say if you had that little moment to sort of add a barbecue to sort of sell the business in terms of what it is and and, and beyond that, you know, who fits, who fits well at JFL? So basically I've got 30 <laughs> seconds to convince you to give up stellar recruitment and come work for JFL. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Go <laughs> for it. <laughs> well, I'd say Hull is a business that takes practical common sense mixes it with a bit of specialised technical know-how, produces some magic dust out of that, which brings us as a business the opportunity to work on the most exciting projects with best partners and clients in Queensland. On top of that, put that into a formula and add it to our reason for being, which is basically looking after people. And what that adds up to is uh, we provide great opportunities for people. Uh, it's it's an exciting place to work. You should come and work for us, Sean. <laughs> well, no, I, I think definitely uh, I think there is a uniqueness about this business that more people should know about, and that, that's just my view, and I'm sure you share that view as well. Obviously, you guys have been very humble about the way you've built the business and go about your business, and that's stood you in good stead. But I think particularly for candidates, understanding more about the business and the opportunities within the business, I think that was sort of the, one of the goals out of today to unpack some of the mystique around that. But uh, sounds like you've got a wonderful focus on on people, be it staff or your customers. 
And I think you guys are deeply passionate about, you know, engineering smarts and solutions and, and delivering complex uh, projects. And I think that all sort of wrapped up with a bit of magic dust, as you put it. Obviously works well. And so I think you guys have done a wonderful job over the last uh, few years in doing that and, and no doubt a, a, an exciting future uh, with you at the helm moving forward. So uh, thanks so much for sharing some of those uh, insights about uh, the business and you. And, and I think uh, for those that are listening, I think uh, yeah, obviously some great insights to to, uh, to take stock of and, and learn from about the business and, and also how you've built a, a really remarkable and, and interesting career as well. So appreciate you taking the time, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Appreciate the opportunity to chat to you, mate. Right, guys. Uh, I hope you enjoyed that podcast uh, from Warren. I know I did. Uh, I think there's some wonderful insights in terms of how he's built his career, um, and he's done that very successfully. But also, I think uh, in terms of the organisation he now uh, leads um, and JFO, I think uh, they've got a fantastic uh, company culture and track record. And also looking forward, they've got uh, some really exciting things looking forward. So for anyone that's uh, interested in, in how to develop their career, uh, I think there's some wonderful takeaways. And then also uh, from an organisation point of view, hopefully you've got a much better understanding of JFL, which was uh, what we set out to achieve. If you did enjoy it, please feel free to pass on to anyone else. Don't forget to subscribe for future podcasts. Um, but thanks again for listening. We appreciate you taking the time. Thank you for listening to StellarCast. This show aligns with why Robbie McIlwraith and Sean McCambridge co-founded the company. Their mission was to help and nurture others to reach and exceed their potential. For trusted recruitment and career advice, contact Stella today.